so we're going to be continuing in our series called Walk. It's a mini-series inside the big series uh, of Ephesians that we've been looking at for, for quite some time. So far, we've looked at part one, walking in God's love, part two, walking in God's light, and part three, walking in God's wisdom. This morning, we're going to look at part four, walking in God's spirit. Uh, I'd just like to begin by saying that, and just kind of as, as, a, as a baseline for where we're going, that, that people are, they're controlled by whatever they're filled with. Uh, they are, they're just controlled, whatever it is that, that is filling them up, they're controlled by whatever that is. If they're filled with darkness, you know, they are controlled by that darkness. If they are filled with pride, they are pretty much controlled by that pride. If they are filled with gluttony, they're controlled by that gluttony. If they're filled with sensuality, and those sorts of things, they're pretty much controlled by that sensuality. So whatever a person's filled with, they're pretty much controlled by. Now, a believer's ability to imitate God, and that's what we've been talking about, to imitate God by walking in his love, light, and wisdom is directly linked to whatever he or she is filled with. In other words, If they're filled with the wrong thing or things, they're not going to be able to walk in his love, light, and wisdom very good at all. If they're filled with the right thing or person, they will be able to do that well. And so that seems to be Paul's point in our text this morning. That's what we're going to be hitting on and looking at and cross-examining and look at how he unpacks this whole idea of being filled with the right thing or person, if you will. Okay, guys, uh, you're there, right? If you're there, say I'm there. All right, Ephesians 5, 18 to 21. We read it. We're going to look at 18a. We'll begin. Are you ready to take some notes and stuff? Huh? Yeah, my son nodded his head yes, and he's sitting like this. That does not mean note mode, but he's got a great memory. He does. His memory's better than mine. Wait till you're 46, dude. Um, 18a... And this is just like, you know, we've been talking about walking and all these things and all this, and then all of a sudden he says this, and I'm like, what? Where's this coming from? It says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Uh, Paul, we call that in our day a (laughs) buzzkill. Wow. I mean, he's talking about all this glorious stuff, and all of a sudden he's, bam, he hits us with this broad statement. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And we're going to learn why he's going there. Um, what did he do here? He basically warned the Ephesians not to get drunk with wine. Now, I'm, I'm fairly certain that most of us in this room know what it means to get drunk. But just in case, you know, just in case you don't know what it means, it, it, it just simply means consuming too much alcohol to the point where you become drunk. And I'll describe what that means a little bit more. The technical, here's a technical definition Uh, Drunkenness is the clouding or disruption by alcohol of any part of a person's mind so that it affects his or her faculties. A person is drunk to the extent that alcohol has restricted or modified any part of his thinking or acting. Drunkenness has many degrees, but it begins when it starts to interrupt the normal functions of the body and mind. So that's a pretty good technical you know, description. I think another word for drunkenness or getting drunk would be intoxication. Same thing. Now, too much alcohol, drunkenness, intoxication, if you will, too much alcohol, what it does is it impairs us physically in a number of ways, right? It impairs our speech, right? You've heard that before. Maybe you've, that's been a tongue you've spoken in the past. Um, it can impair our motor skills, right? You know, the guy that walks out of the bar, 
does a header on the sidewalk. You know, it can impair our judgment, which would be our ability to process information and to make right decisions, right? You know, people do some crazy things while hammered. Now, notice how Paul referred to drunkenness as debauchery. That's what he calls it. He says, for that is debauchery. Debauchery is, is ah, so say ah, ah, like ah, looking at your tonsils, asotia, asotia in Greek. Asotia has to do with having no, and this is what asotia means, it, it has to do with having no concern about the consequences of our actions. Okay? So that's what asotia, that's what debauchery here means. It means to have no concern about the consequences of our actions. Okay, it, it, you could say that it means carelessness. Drunkenness and carelessness go hand in hand, right? Amen? Right? The more a person drinks, the less he or she cares about what could happen to them, what could happen to others. They don't really care about the consequences. The more the alcohol, the uh, uh, more they consume, the less coherent and the less concerned they become about what's going on around them. Things like personal safety and the safety of others go right out the window, right? I think you guys are tracking with me. Now, when I was a teenager, uh, I used to go to a lot of parties. I did. Uh, I'm just going to say a couple of street names and, and maybe you'll say amen. Lit Road. Nope, nobody in here knows what Lit Road means? <laughs> he says nobody wants to admit to it. Lit Road was a place where there were a lot of parties back in the day, and there's another one. Crawford Road was another one that I used to go to a lot of parties at, right? I, Canal Banks, I mean, if you live in Modesto and you can't go to a club, and the clubs were pathetic back in the late 80s and 90s anyways, you just pretty much went and drank on a Canal you know, Bank, or you went out to Lit Road or Crawford Road. That's pretty much what you did. And so uh, now a friend of mine through a, uh, what we would uh, call a rager, okay? A lot of people at this party. I can remember bits and pieces of it, but she threw this massive, massive party. Now, this is when I was, like, really young. So this is a time of confession. Um, you know, yeah, I did not wait till I was 21 to, to, to drink, and I would say to everyone in here, you need to do that, and you need to be mindful of what you're doing anyways. But I, I was at this party. I was probably 15 years old. I remember the backyard pretty clearly, um, because of what happened, and that's why it's like burned into my mind. But I remember there was this, I don't know who does this, who puts a giant pool right in the middle of the yard and then throws a huge party with a bunch of drunk people, right? So there was this huge pool in the middle, and uh, there, were, there were people present and around the pool and all over the yard and stuff. I remember a very, very big crowd, and I remember getting absolutely hammered. I had at least two beers. I was like 50, I think they were Coors Cutters, you know what those are? Those are like the non-alcoholic beers. We used to trick our friends, you know, and they'd act all drunk. It's like, dude, you've been drinking non-alcoholic beer all night. Oh, you know. But I, I, would, I got blitzed. I was hammered. And uh, I had like two beers maybe. Back then I was a real lightweight. Still am. Don't drink much today. But all of a sudden, while I'm, you know, kind of sauced and doing my thing, this Herculoid, you know, this big old monster from Davis High, that's where I was going, he just decides to pick a fight on with me. Hey, punk, you know, <laughs> you know, I was hammered. I remember this guy, I remember this guy walking up to me and he looked like a wall of muscle. And I looked like Daniel's son from the Karate Kid, right? 
You know, I was like, I, it was, I, I weighed a buck too wet. I mean, I was, I was just really, really scrawny. In fact, that carried up into my 20s, and a guy that my, my, my good friend here and I used to work with, he used to call me too thin to win. Yeah, nice. Huh? I called him other things that you can't mention in church. So I look like Daniel's son. Here's this monster in front of me, and he wants to turn me into a human javelin or pick his teeth with me. And, uh, and I weighed a buck, too, and, and, and I was pretty frightened. And I remember reaching into my pocket <laughs> and grabbing my knife. And, and I remember clearly just pulling it out of my pocket and removing it from its sheath and holding it up and then yelling a whole bunch of expletives at him and screaming. And the next thing I remember is climbing out of the pool. So what happened was somebody came over and, you know, and kicked both of us in the pool. So I remember being underwater, and I remember coming up, and I remember swimming to the end and getting out, and then I looked over, and the Herculoid was swimming. Fortunately, he had a lot of muscle mass. He couldn't swim good. But he, he got out. He got out and went in one direction. I got out and went in the other direction. And uh, I basically spent the rest of my drunken stupor evening looking for my knife because it disappeared. And it was like an heirloom. It was something, you know, this was like right after my dad left our family and he gave me this knife. It had a real rattleskin handle. It was just this prized possession of mine. All night I spent looking for it. I couldn't find it anywhere. And as I was writing this and reflecting on this text, I was reminded of how my drunkenness led to carelessness, debauchery. What would have happened if I hadn't have gone into that pool? I wasn't thinking about the consequences. I could have shanked that monster. Probably what would have happened is he would have stuck the nose up my knife, up my, my knife, <laughs> up my nose. <laughs> I had a knife in my nose blocking the other knife, you know. I, it could have been horrible, but, you know, here's, here's the idea here of it just being drunk and being controlled by the booze and then thinking you're a tough guy, you know, and then one step leads to another and the next thing you know, I'm threatening somebody's life and, and not even thinking about the consequences. And I wonder, I wonder how many people there are in our jails or prisons that made a foolish, drunken decision like that, and now they're doing 20 to life because they stabbed some Herculoid, you know, or whatever. And, and, that, and that's, you know, that's kind of what he has in mind here. It's like, you know, if, you, if you're filled with wine, if you're filled with beer or whatever it is, then you're controlled by that substance or whatever it is, and, and you can't make right, rational decisions. You know, you are impaired and it leads to carelessness and careless thinking. And so I think that's where he's going here. Now, unfortunately, and, and just quickly before we move on, I would say how many of you could share a drunken tale where, you know, you acted carelessly without any kind of concern about what's going on, and, and it led to, you know, a chain of events or something that happened that, that you wish didn't happen or that you're kind of ashamed of or, or whatever now? I know what you're thinking, please, Lord, don't let him ask us to put our hands up because my kids are watching, you know, right? But how many of us could tell, I mean, let's just be honest, right? You know, I mean, maybe some of us, you know, were born a Christian, a born-again Christian, you know, whatever. Maybe you've been raised in the church and you just, you've never known anything and you, you avoided decisions like that. Praise the Lord! But if you're like me, you were a moron for 31, you're a moron still, but, you know, for 31 years, this is pretty much how you lived your life. How many of us could tell a drunken tale? Now, unfortunately, many believers today 
They do not believe. I'm talking about believers. They do not think or believe that drunkenness is a sin. They don't think it's a sin. They think it's okay to get drunk as long as you don't harm yourself, as long as you don't harm others, as long as you don't harm, destroy, ruin people's property. You see, if you're just drinking by yourself and you get sauced and you're not bothering anyone, then what's the deal? Why is that a problem? Why is that an issue? Now, the fact of the matter is the Bible never, ever, ever once speaks of drunkenness in a positive way. Never. All it does is condemn it. Over and over and over. Now, the Bible is just filled with, with you know, tragic stories about drunkenness and, and warnings. I mean, you think of some of them. Shortly after Noah exited the ark, after the great flood, he became a winemaker, right? And, and he got sauced, and he passed out naked in his tent because so often drunkenness leads to nakedness, unfortunately, So he gets drunk off his own wine, passes out in his tent buck naked, and his son Ham enters the tent and saw his nakedness. And back in these days, this was a big, 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 big no-no. It was a totally disgracing, humiliating thing to see, you know, a family member, your father, naked like this. And his son Ham comes in and sees him naked, and, and you know, Noah becomes totally humiliated when he comes to, puts his clothes on and realizes what's happened. And he pronounces curses on his son. That's in Genesis 9. After Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, Lot fled to Zoar, another town. And then he fled there thinking that that city was going to get destroyed. And he went into the mountains. And his two daughters who were with him thought that he was literally only man left on earth. Got him drunk and laid with him. And they both conceived. So he got drunk and he just lost any sense of what was going on around him. And then his own daughters took advantage of him. Unreal, that's Genesis 19. King Belshazzar held a drunken feast and his guests began to, you know, everyone was hammered and they began to do something that they wouldn't normally do and that's to praise a bunch of gold, silver, bronze idols. Right? It's like they switched from praising Yahweh, the true God, to, hey, we're hammered, let's worship idols. So they start praising all these little idols and these things, shout, giving shout outs to all these false gods. What happened? A huge brawl broke out. During that brawl, he lost his kingdom. His kingdom was taken from him, Daniel 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read about how believers were getting drunk during the Lord's Supper, communion, of all things. Obviously, they did communion with real wine back then. Some churches do it today. It's not wrong as long as it's all done right. But they were coming to the Lord's Supper and and, and turning it into a party. It was a lit road thing. And they were getting drunk. And because of this, God caused many of them to die And if not to die, to become weak and sick. They were profaning the Lord through their drunkenness and through taking communion. And this is why we always must examine our lives before we take the elements. Not saying that we're coming in here drunk and doing that, but we need to evaluate ourselves. Now, one of the strongest warnings against drunkenness is in 1 Corinthians 6.10, which simply says that drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, so I'm, I'm not exactly sure how Christians, Christians you know, can believe that drunkenness is okay when the Bible just repeatedly condemns it and warns and warns and warns and warns. Now, I do want you to notice something about verse 18a again. I want you to notice the phrasing. It says, and do not get drunk with wine. It clearly says, do not get drunk. It does not say, do not drink. 
Now, there are church folks out there who misread this text. I don't know if it's deliberately or they just lack understanding or discernment, but they really think that it, you know, this passage makes it clear that all drinking is a sin. I've met a, a few, not to name call, but a few Southern Baptists who, who take this position pretty hard line. Well, you know, it's, it's just all drinking is a sin. You shouldn't drink anything. You shouldn't have any of it. Now, most of the time, these are the same folks who, who tell us to stay away from premarital sex because it can lead to dancing. Because dancing's the worst thing ever for some. Think of the movie Footloose. I'm serious. It's just amazing how backwards our brains can get over these things. The fact of the matter is, verse 18a does not condemn drinking. It condemns drunkenness, which is debauchery. There is a difference between drinking and drunkenness. Obviously, drinking can lead to drunkenness. We must not fail to realize and understand that Jesus drank wine regularly, but he never overdrank. He never got drunk. It never became a sin for him. And people say all the time, you couldn't get drunk on the wine that Jesus drank because it was watered down, it was diluted, it was more like grape juice. Where does it say that in the Bible? If you couldn't get drunk on it then in, on first century wine, then why is Paul warning the Ephesians to be careful when they drink it? Some of the things that we concoct and come up with. Now here's Paul's point. If a believer fills himself with wine, he will become controlled by wine, drunk, and lose his ability, lose her ability to imitate God. Paul wrote about walking in God's wisdom in verses 15 through 17. It's something that we looked at recently, a couple of weeks ago. How can a believer walk in God's wisdom while he or she is drunk? You know... And here's the fact. In order for us to imitate God, we must be filled, but not with wine or some other alcoholic beverage. What must we be filled with? Look at verse 18b. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, that's what we are to be filled with. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? I'm sure that some of you were wondering that. I was when I read this. Well, let me tell you what it is not. Okay, I'll begin by telling you what it is not. This is, this is not being filled with the Spirit, these six quick things here. Being filled with the Spirit is not a post-salvation dramatic act or experience where a believer is zapped into an advanced spiritual state. That's not what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to have some kind of a post-salvific experience where, boom, you're brought into a higher level of spirituality or consciousness or something. And, and the reason why I'm mentioning these things is there's goofy churches out there that teach this stuff. Secondly, being filled with the Spirit is not the, it's not the other extreme where people stoically try to do what God wants them to do with the Spirit's blessing, but basically in their own power. That's not what it means either. Third, being filled with the Spirit is not the same as being possessed by the Spirit. Believers are already possessed by the Spirit. Being filled and possessed are two different things. Fourth, being filled with the Spirit does not have to do with a process 
where we receive the Spirit by doses or degrees. We do not begin with a little bit of the Spirit when we first get saved and then increase over time. John 3.34 says God gives the Spirit without measure. Five, being filled with the Spirit is not the same as baptism of the Spirit. Every believer is already baptized by or in the Holy Spirit. There is no post-salvation baptism other than water baptism, which is different from baptism of the Spirit. When a person believes in Jesus Christ, that, is, that signifies that the Spirit has baptized them in a spiritual way, that He has come upon them. So it's not the same as, as being baptized by the Spirit. Six, being filled with the Spirit is not the same as being sealed by the Spirit, which is something we read about in Ephesians 1.13. Okay? Being filled with the Spirit is not the same as being sealed by the Spirit. Every believer has been sealed by the Spirit. And that sealing takes place at the moment of salvation. So those are six things that it is not. Now let me tell you what being filled with the Holy Spirit actually is and what it means and what Paul intends here. To be filled with the Spirit is to live in the consciousness of the personal presence of the Lord Jesus, as if we were standing next to Him, and to let His mind dominate our life. It is to fill ourselves with God's Word so that His thoughts will be our thoughts, His standards our standards, His work our work, and His will our will. As we yield to the truth of Christ, the Holy Spirit will lead us to say, do, and be what God wants us to say, do, and be. Amen? To be filled with the Spirit involves confession of sin and the surrender of our will, intellect, body, time, talent, possessions, and desires. I want you to think of it like this. You cannot be filled with the Spirit if you were filled with something else. You cannot be filled with the Spirit if you are being dominated by something like an addiction, by something like an earthly desire, by some sort of perceived need. You know how we are, right? We think we need something, and, and then all of a sudden that just completely dominates our minds. I gotta get it. I gotta get it. I gotta get it. I gotta get it. That's all we do, and that's what we think about all the time. I do this. Where is there room for the Spirit if we're in that mode? Where is there room for the Spirit if, if we can't wait to get to our next drink or pill or line or joint? or next sexual encounter, whatever you're filled with, that's what you're filled with and controlled by. Whatever you're dominated with, you, you can't be dominated by the Holy Spirit at the same time that you're dominated by something else. And I would say this, you cannot be filled with the Spirit if you are dominated by fear. Fear really is the absence of faith. Fear really is the absence of the Holy Spirit who makes us strong in the Lord who makes us bold in the Lord, who does not give us a spirit of timidity, but of boldness in Christ. How can you be filled with the Spirit if you walk in constant fear? The fear of what people think, the fear of what could happen, the fear of health issues, the fear of our government, the fear of our nation, the fear of the devil, the fear, the fear, the fear. How can the Spirit be there? I'll tell you this, in order to be filled by the Spirit, we must first be emptied 
We must. Being emptied has to do with dying to ourselves and submitting to Christ. And when we do this, when we die to ourselves more and more each day, because it really is a moment-by-moment daily thing, and when we, we submit to Christ, that's something I have to remind myself always of, daily, moment-by-moment, when we do this, the Lord fills us with His Spirit. In verses 19 through 21, Paul describes the activities of a Spirit-filled believer. He's already told us, look, if you're drunk on wine and filled with that, you can't be filled with the Spirit. You can't imitate God. Be filled with the Spirit so that you can. And now he's going to describe what it looks like when you are filled with the Spirit, and this is how we behave. This is how we should live. Let's begin with 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And what we see here is the rationale for Paul's warning in verse 18a. This is the rationale for it. This is why he's warning, because it, it, he's, he's warning, stay away from the booze, because you won't be able to do this. Or at least don't get drunk, I should say. Now, if we're to take his words at first value, I think in 18a, we would be led to believe that his primary concern had to do with morality or the immorality of drunkenness. But verse 19 shows that Paul wasn't pointing to morality, but to spirituality. Verse 19 has to do with worship. It has to do with how believers are to behave, how believers are to address one another, how believers are to praise the Lord when they come together for worship, when they fellowship. To the Ephesians, as to most pagans and former pagans of that day, drunkenness was closely associated with the idolatrous rites and practices that were an integral part of temple worship. In the mystery religions, which began in ancient Babylon and were copied and modified throughout the Near East and in Greek and Roman cultures, the height of religious experience was communion with the gods through various forms of ecstasy. To achieve an ecstatic experience, the participants would use self-hypnosis and frenzied dances designed to work themselves into a high emotional pitch. You know, heavy drinking and orgies contributed still further to the sensual stupor that their perverted minds led them to think was creating communion with the gods. This is precisely the type of pagan worship with which the Ephesians were well acquainted and in which many believers had once been involved. It was also the type of worship and associated immorality and carnality from which Many of the Corinthian believers had such a difficult time divorcing themselves, and for which Paul rebuked them strongly. He said of those who worship in this manner that they participate with demons, that they drink from the cup of demons, that they provoke the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, 20-22. I can't help but just pause for a moment and, and state the obvious that if you've been paying attention at all to, to our culture and maybe to what some churches are doing, um, and I want to say this with all respect and sens- sensitivity to you if you've been mixed up in this, but, but when I was studying this and reading this, I was reminded of what many churches do today. Maybe less the drunkenness and orgies, but we know people who whip themselves into an emotional frenzy, dancing and flailing and speaking in strange, incommunicable tongues, flags flying, craziness during worship. Uh, just so you know, 
with all due respect, that is not a, another type of Christianity. It's not, it's not a, another branch or another expression of it. It's rooted in Eastern mysticism. This is exactly what people were doing in Paul's day. So when you see that craziness, don't think, wow, they're really worshiping the Lord. And they all claim that, hey, we've come into the presence of the Lord. These people thought they were coming into the presence of the Lord through what they were doing. And what they were actually doing is coming into the presence of extreme emotionalism. There's a lot of stuff going on out there. And a lot of it is blasphemous to the Holy Spirit. This this is not new, guys. There's nothing new under the sun, Solomon says. What you see happening in churches today has been copied and maybe even modified from Greco-Roman religion and, and even Eastern mysticism and these sorts of things. It's out there. So what does that mean? Oh, those guys are a bunch of idiots over there. No, 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 no. It means we proclaim the truth to them in love. We want them to know and understand that, look, what you're involved in here is blasphemous and dangerous. Maybe we would open this text to them and say, look, Paul is ultimately concerned about how the Ephesians, when they come together, what their state of mind is, where they're at. Are they thinking clearly? Are they actually worshiping in spirit of truth? Or are they actually doing what others, the others around them are doing when they come together to worship, quote unquote? His point so far is that we're not to be filled with wine, drunkenness, and engage in sinful activities like pagan worship. Instead, They were to be filled with the Spirit and engage in godly activities like true worship, which he described in this verse. According to verse 19, true worship has to do with what? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. I want you to notice the three categories of songs Paul listed here. True worship has to do with three categories of songs here. Is that me making that terrible noise? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, he names. Psalms refers to, or refers primarily to the Old Testament psalms put to music. But the term was also used of vocal music of any sort, such as solos and anthems. Uh, The psalms primarily seek, or speak, pardon me, speak about the nature and work of God, especially in the lives of believers. A mighty fortress is our God, is adapted from Psalms 23 and 84. There's an example. So that's the idea of psalm. It's this proclamation of who God is and what he's done. And then you have hymns listed here. Another category refers primarily to songs of praise, which in the early church were probably distinguished from the psalms in that there are from the uh, yeah, from the psalms in that they specifically praised the Lord Jesus. Many biblical scholars believe that various New Testament passages were used as hymns. I know there was one from uh, Colossians that I was looking at the other day. The Old Rugged Cross is a great classic hymn. And then you have spiritual songs, uh, refers primarily to songs of testimony. This is the broadest category of songs. We sing a lot of spiritual songs at RHC, a couple examples, 10,000 Reasons, The Stand, Our God, Are to Name a Few. Spiritual songs have to do, too, with just proclaiming the glorious gospel and these sorts of things and giving our testimony and what Christ has done for us. And one of the things that I want you to notice here is that true worship is diverse. Right? We see diversity in the text, don't we? There are three categories of songs here and we should engage all three. 
We should sing psalms, and we should sing hymns, and we should sing spiritual songs. Not just one or the other. Now, it is true. It is true that we all have our preferences. Well, I tell you, I'm all about them hymns. And when I go to a church and they don't do anything but hymns, it's not the church for me. This is how people behave. Uh, Okay, just so you know, there's two other categories of songs that we can engage in to the glory of the Lord. Well, I'm telling you, I'm just about all them spiritual songs. I like to repeat the same lyric 4,000 times because that's what they tend to do. In your presence, Lord, in your presence. Okay, we're in your presence. They tend to be very repetitive. And that's okay, as long as it's under 10 times in a row. You've got diversity here, but we do have preferences. And so, you know, we shouldn't allow our preferences to, to, to lead us to disqualify the other categories or to hammer people who like and prefer other songs and want maybe a mix. And I would say this too. We need to be very, very discerning when it comes to the music that we do because there is a lot of bad worship out there today. It's ridiculous. Uh, Some of it is just so insanely shallow and and, and so much of it is so me-centered. Me, 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 me. And, And some of it is just overly repetitious. So we would all agree that true worship is diverse. What else did Paul say about it in verse 19? It is making melody to the Lord with your heart. Making melody in Greek means to sing praise and to glorify. True worship has to do with praising and glorifying the Lord Jesus. That's what true worship is. We lift up and exalt the Lord Jesus Notice what else it says, addressing one another. We not only sing to the Lord, guess what, friends? We sing to one another. No, it can't be. Yes. Yes, that's what Paul is saying. He's he's not even talking about singing to the Lord. He's talking about singing to each other here. But I would say, yes, it means singing to the Lord as well. We not only sing to the Lord, we sing to one another. Why? It's called edification. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs has to do with proclaiming the truth to one another, which does what? Builds us up and sanctifies us, makes us more like Christ. So when we come to sing to the Lord and you're lifting your voice, yeah, you're praising Him, but the brother or sister next to you is being edified and built up and made sturdy in the faith because of your proclamation. Very, very important that we understand this. People skip out all the time on church, right? Well, I'm not going to go because, you know. And you're actually not building others up even through your singing. Let me tell you, the Holy Spirit is here. This is one of his purposes. He is here to lead us into all truth. And he uses a multitude of tools to accomplish this. And one of them is melody, songs, singing, praise, worship. So essential that we get this. Look at the end of verse 19. It says, with your heart. True worship comes from the heart, which is the whole person. True worship isn't just a mind thing. It involves our mind, which is the seat of knowledge and truth. It also involves our spirit, which is the seat of our emotions, and it involves our body, which is the very temple of the living God. 
The mind, the spirit, the body represent the whole person. And the Bible often uses the term heart in reference to the whole person. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here. When we worship, we worship with the whole of our being. Not just here, not just here. It's the whole package. So true worship, what? It has to do with song diversity. It has to do with praise to Christ. It has to do with edification. And it has to do with heart. True worship is the activity of a spirit-filled believer. What other activities does the spirit-filled believer engage in? Look at 20. It says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thankfulness is the activity of a spirit-filled believer. Now, I want you to pay close attention to the phrasing again. It says, giving thanks always. What is this? This is continuous thanks, right? Giving thanks always. That means perpetual. It means continuous thanks. Also, notice the phrase, Uh, for everything. This is comprehensive thanks, right? So you have continuous thanks and you have comprehensive thanks. A spirit-filled believer gives continuous and comprehensive thanks to God the Father. Continuous thanks has to do with giving thanks to God the Father during the good times, during the bad times, during the mediocre times. At all times. All, at all times. I mean, it's just to have this thankful attitude and heart. How do you know if someone's filled with the Spirit? They're thankful all the time. Just perpetually, you know. And I thank you, the Lord. I, I know it sounds feeble, but I thank you for the parking spot. You know, we have this goofy thing that Rachel and I do. Every time we pull into a parking lot and it's packed, I always say, oh, Lord, help us. And then all of a sudden we see a spot and I always say, the Lord hath gotten before us. That's a... St- Stupid little example, but it's, it's being thankful for, you know, all the time. All the time. All the time. Continually. And I like what Paul says about prayer. Pray, pray continuously. Well, here he's saying, be thankful continuously. Just have a disposition of thanks. Can I tell you what's a lot better than bitterness? It's a lot better than fear. It's a lot better than envy. Continuous thanks has to do with giving thanks to God the Father through the good times and the bad times when things are peaceful and prosperous and when things, you know, when the prosperity runs out and when people we love leave or pass away, whatever it is that happens, it's, it's this having this sort of disposition of thanks. A spirit-filled believer responds to difficulty like Job who said the Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See that? That's it right there. That's the key. You give and take away. Blessed, right? You know the song? What do you think we're singing about right there? It's this being filled with the Spirit and having this attitude of continuous thanks. And then we have comprehensive thanks. This has to do with giving thanks to God the Father for all things. Even the Even the goofy things, the little things that seem meaningless or repetitious, 
but especially the unfavorable things and stuff like illnesses and job losses and difficulty. Why would you thank the Lord during those times? Well, I think because a spirit-filled believer believes that God truly works all things for his or her greater good. Even this tragedy that has befallen me is meant to make me more like Christ. And I thank the Lord in the midst of it. Right? I want you to notice also, and comprehensive thanks, thanking him for all kinds of stuff. Good, bad, and the ugly. Trusting. Trusting him. Notice the phrase, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we give thanks to God the Father, we are to do it in the name of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? I want you to notice something about this amazing text. Did you notice how our thanksgiving is Trinitarian? A believer is filled with what? The Holy Spirit and give thanks to the Father in the name of the Son. So amazing. The whole Trinity is mentioned and glorified in this amazing text. And let me tell you something, friends. If you're a believer, you ought to give up thanks to all three. So often we tend to just, oh, I just give it all to Jesus. And I, I, I think that's good in a way. But don't forget about the Father who wrought the plan of salvation for you. Don't forget about the Holy Spirit who brought the plan of salvation for you. And most certainly don't forget about the Son who bought salvation for you. Our thanks should go to all three. Father, I, I thank you. Lord Jesus, I thank you. Holy Spirit, I thank you. Give it all up to them. Glorify the Godhead. Let your thanks be Trinitarian. There is one more activity in this text that a spirit-filled believer engages in. I want you to look at verse 21. Is anyone getting any of this? It's good stuff. I'm sweating. I am. I just get sweaty. I just, I just like it. I like the word. It gets me going. One more activity here. Look at verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission to one another is the activity of a spirit-filled believer. What does submitting mean? Well, submitting is, and you can say this one easily, hypotasso. Can you say it? Hypotasso in Greek. And it is a military term, which means to arrange or rank under. Okay? Now, I don't think that Paul had hierarchy in mind here. And there is a bit of hierarchy in the church, but I don't like to think of it as hierarchy. You do have elders, and they're kind of the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the church and all that. I don't really like to refer to them as a hierarchy, but there is... You know, there is some rank, I suppose, to a degree, but I don't think that's what he's pointing at to here at all because he definitely begins to point to that in verse 22 when he starts to talk about family. I believe he was pointing to humility as we consider others greater than ourselves. That's what I think he meant. Believers are to never lord their position or authority over others. They're never to lord their understanding and knowledge and spiritual growth and development over lesser brothers or sisters or anyone. We are not supposed to look down on others, especially believers. If a Christian displays this sort of domineering, you know, controlling behavior, 
it is a sign that he or she is not filled with the Spirit, but is filled with pride and arrogance. That's the truth. Domination might be acceptable and even promoted in other religions like Islam, but it is forbidden in Christianity. It is condemnable. A spirit-filled believer is, is one who is, or let's put it like this, because when I was thinking about this, I thought, well, then what does that mean for people who are believers who are in leadership positions? Does that mean they're just constantly humble and or, you know, maybe passive and they don't ever lead or do anything? No, 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 no. They're just not to lead with an iron fist. They lead by example. They set an example for other believers and for unbelievers. And they lead in, I'll tell you, the greatest, greatest leadership tool in the universe is humility. It's attractive. It's appealing. It causes people to go, what is going on here? I should be getting a size 12 in my rear. They just, it just, it, people are just like, I, I can't believe. Now, just understand, though, some will interpret that as weakness. That's not weakness. Humility is strength. It's, it's power under control is what it is. So if you're a leader and you're a believer, you know, it doesn't mean, well, I just let everyone just do what they want and they just walk all over me and they run my company like crazy. and da, 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 da. No, 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 no. You lead by example, Christian, in humility. We are to lead others and, and to minister to others in humility, not in domination, not by force, not by coercion, not by manipulation. The spirit-filled believer is humble and, and is a really, really, really strong leader because they lead by example. They have a, a life marked by godly character and integrity and honesty and fairness and grace and mercy and truth. Well, that's a tall order, isn't it? Our ultimate example is Jesus Christ, who humbly submitted himself to the Father, but not just to the Father, but also to earthly authorities. And we are to follow his lead. Primary example here is that we submit to one another. That I think of Mike Boyd as not only a brother, but not only as someone whom I love, but is greater than me. And not that he's all that much better. <laughs> he is. He's ten times the man of me. And be careful of false humility. Well, I see what this Bible says here, and I just need to do that. It does not mean wimpy, fake. Yes, when you think of people, you think of them as being higher than yourself, and you submit to them. I'll give you some ways to do that in just a moment. Our ultimate example is Jesus Christ, and we are to follow his lead. What, what, what? should motivate us to submit to one another. Paul wrote, out of reverence for Christ. It is out of respect for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we submit to one another. He commands us to do it. 
And if we respect his person, position, authority, and word, we will do what he tells us to do. It's not a grind. It's our joy. Let's begin to wrap it up. I'd like to leave you with six ways that you can submit to others. I think it's very apropos that we um, focus here. The first thing you must do is reprogram your mind with the word of God, which makes it clear that we are to consider others more important than ourselves. That's step one. Humility is the key. Without it, you will get nowhere. You've got to allow the word of God to change the way you're thinking. Because let me tell you something right now, friends. Does the world tell us the exact opposite? You're the most important. It's all about you. You deserve it. Isn't that what the world's message is to us? About 3,000 ads a day hitting us, telling us how great we are. You see, we've got to let the word of God dwell in us richly and transform our minds and change the way that the world has shaped our thinking, that our very nature has shaped our thinking, thinking that we are the pinnacle of it all and the center of the universe. You've got to have your mind transformed and renewed and you've got to understand that that's not who you are. In Christ, you are less than others and it's okay to be less. It's okay to be last because the last shall be first. You get it? You got it. That's it. You got to start there. Okay, 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 I get it, I get it, I get it. Others are better than me. That's number one. Secondly, and these are just some real practical things that you can do to display this submission and humility. Secondly, you can give people your attention. Let them talk. Some of us are just like waiting and then they stop. The person who's filled with the Spirit and humble, he's quick to listen and slow to speak. He, he cares about others' words more than his own words. Uh, he's just, like I said, practical. Third, try to meet others' needs before you meet your own. Try to meet others' needs before you meet your own. And we're so quick to, I gotta, I gotta get mine. And then now, what do you need? Well, it's kind of late. If you think and believe in your heart that others are better than you and you want to submit and get yourself under them and get yourself in this humble last place position, which is where you truly should be, that's where true greatness is, you've got to reprogram your mind. You have got, you have got to try to meet others' needs before yourself. Consider them greater and their needs more important. You've got to give people your attention. You've got to start letting them talk and share what's going on with them. And then try to give them some wisdom or don't say anything at all. Sometimes the ministry of presence is the most powerful ministry you could ever have. Just to be there. Fourth, if a person wants something from you, give it to them without a hassle. And give it to them without strings. True biblical lending is giving. It really isn't any lending and there isn't any interest. If someone has a need, I, I, I meet it. And I don't, oh, then I'll only have one tunic. Apparently, I wear tunics. Right? When, when somebody has a need and all of a sudden we start thinking about what we have and like, well, I'm not sure if I could meet that need because I only have six of those. 
I'll give it to you. I'm a loan shark, $20 a week. Just give stuff freely to people. Let stuff go. I, I do believe that if your hands are full of stuff all the time, you can't receive anything else from the Lord. Give it away. And he'll just keep pouring into you and through you, and you'll meet needs. And boy, I tell you, it is, it is true. It is true. It is much greater to give than to receive. It is. Give stuff freely without hassle. Offer, offer, offer. Meet them needs. Fifth, if a person calls you out for doing something stupid, happens to me all the time, apologize, make it right, and thank them. Remember, continuous thanks, comprehensive thanks. Is that about the farthest thing in the universe from what we want to do when somebody calls us on something? We go through a kata. You know, we just start, we want to fight. We want to resist. And, and we want to expose their sin. And what you know you, well, you know, if you say, oh, you, and you start bringing it on them or blaming everyone else, that's not a spirit-filled believer. That's not humility. That's not considering others better than you. That's fear and, you know, you perceiving how they think of you and you defend yourself and all this garbage. I tell you, one of the greatest things that we could ever do when we blow it and do something stupid is just apologize. Gosh, it just goes so far. Just apologize. I'm sorry. And then do what you have to do to make things right, to restore the relationship, whatever you've damaged. And sixth, if a person insults you, overlook the insult let it go and bless them. Well, you'll find many of these things in the Beatitudes that I've just mentioned. Bless those who what? Amen. Persecute you. Oh, that's not what we want to do. We're like, throw down with this fool. We get drunk and pull a knife. Ha ha! And then go swimming. And have wet pants all night. Reprogram your mind. Believe that others are better. Humility is the key. Listen to people. Let them speak. Meet others' needs before your own. If somebody wants something, give it freely without a hassle. Just give. Be generous. If a person calls you out for doing something dumb, apologize. Make it right and thank them. And if you're insulted, overlook the insult. Let it go. Bless them. These are spirit-filled behaviors, characteristics, traits. Sounds a lot like the Lord Jesus and how he lived out his life while he was here and did his ministry, doesn't it? I hope you've been challenged and encouraged by this. I think it's an amazing passage. The question is, what part hit your bullseye? Where have you been hit? Where have you been struck by the Lord? For me, it was really all of the above, but in particular, thankfulness and submission. I'm not very good at either of them, and I've been asking God why, and I've been saying, Lord, am I not filled with the Spirit like I should be? What needs to be removed so that I can be filled with the Spirit, how this text describes, and, and then imitate you, Father, more consistently? 
so I can walk in your love, so I can walk in your wisdom, so I can walk in your spirit moment by moment daily. And let me tell you, I've been seeking him, and God has been speaking to me. He's helping me to see how self-centered I am, and he wants me to die more and more to myself so that I can be filled and do what his word instructs me to do. What is God calling you to do today? What area where you fall short? His heart is to, is to lovingly correct us and get us on track.